I hope that you will keep in mind that text that Mac read to us just so well just a moment ago. This is not a textual lesson. It will be more topical in its nature. But underneath it all is that idea, that sentiment that God wants all men to be saved. I know more has been said about this in recent weeks, but I want you to keep in mind what a great opportunity that we have when we can get away from this building, as wonderful as it is, we're so thankful for it today as it's raining, but we need that time apart from these more formal gatherings to get to know each other better. And even if we know each other well, it's a way to get to know each other even better. And so we call it every year the family retreat. It is for families that make up Lehman Avenue, but it is for the Lehman Avenue family. And so as a part of our family, I hope that you're going to make your plans uh, to be there. We're going to talk about some uh, matters that are related to the trip we got back on, but it won't be a travel log this weekend. Uh, but So we hope that you'll be there as we center our thoughts around uh, our time together as family. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus says in a specific way what the rest of the New Testament says in a more general way. He says, enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads unto destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. For straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. In this very important statement that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount, we can make at least three observations by way of introduction. First of all, we can see from what Jesus is saying to us that life has two roadways. You'll notice that Jesus speaks of that straight gate and that narrow way. That's roadway number one. And he speaks of that wide gate and that broad way. That's roadway number two. As far as our Lord is concerned, these are the only two roadways that there are in this life. Here in America, we still speak of the upper class and the middle class and the lower class, but you will notice that our Lord speaks of only two classes of humanity, those on the broad road and those on the narrow road, those that are saved and those that are lost. You know, when the Titanic went down, they published two different lists, one of those that survived and one for those that did not. But you'll observe with me that our Lord in the judgment scene in Matthew chapter 25 says that humanity is going to be divided into just two groups. Those on the Lord's right hand and those on the Lord's left hand. Those that are saved and those that are lost. All of us are going to be in one of those two groups. And so Jesus emphasizes for us that life has only two roadways. But second, Jesus also observes in this statement that eternity has only two dwelling places. That straight gate and that narrow way leads to life. And that broad way and that wide gate leads to destruction. Our Lord is dealing with everlasting life and everlasting destruction. Again, those who are saved and those who are lost. But I want you to observe with me that we're all on a one-way street heading out toward eternity. Thought about that. Whatever has been said cannot be unsaid. Whatever has been done can never be undone. We're all going one direction. And we're closer to eternity than we have ever been. 
You are 24 hours closer to the judgment right now than you were at this time yesterday. And all of us are going to dwell in one of two dwelling places. We're either going to dwell in heaven where there is absolute bliss and eternal joy and fellowship with the Godhead, with the angels, and with the saints of all ages, or we're going to dwell in what the Bible calls hell, a place where there's despair, absolute pain, and everlasting fire. In this statement of Jesus, we see that not only does life have two roadways, but eternity has only two dwelling places. But in this statement that Jesus makes, the third thing we can observe is, according to him, that more are going to hell than are going to heaven. Now our Lord doesn't give us specific numbers, does he? But when our Lord speaks about those who are going out into eternity, he uses two words. He says many and few. I don't know how many our Lord had in mind when he says many there be that go in thereat. And I don't know how many he had in mind when he said few there be that find it. But I know that when he speaks of the number of those who will be eternally redeemed, he says few there be that find it. And when he speaks of those who are going to be eternally separated from God, he says many there be that go in thereat. To me it's a startling thing to think that more are going to hell than are going to heaven. If heaven is so beautiful and hell is so horrible, why would more go to hell than go to heaven? Men run toward the devil as if he were God. And men run from God as if he were the devil. Men run towards sin as if it were righteousness and run from righteousness as if it were sin. Men run toward hell as if it were heaven and run from heaven as if it were hell. It's an insane age in which we live. And yet the Bible would indicate to us that God wants all of us to be saved. You remember what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9? He says that the Lord is not slow concerning his promises. Some men count slowness, but he is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here's the fact of the matter as Jesus lays it out for us in Matthew chapter 7. If you find yourself on the Lord's left hand, when you stand before him in the judgment, it'll be because you chose that road that leads to destruction. And if you find yourself among those uh, of whom he says, come you blessed of my father, it'll be because you chose that road that leads to life. When we think about that, I don't know how you have envisioned that road to eternity. We said there's two roadways. But I would suggest to you that the road to hell, while it is broad and easy, is not one because of what God has done, that it is easy for us to get from here to there. I'd like for you to think of it instead as a series that God has put up of roadblocks, of barriers. If you will, a wall. It's a wall that we can penetrate, that we can go through, but God has placed these. You know, since I've moved to Kentucky four years ago, they've been doing construction. I believe they're going to be done with that construction on I-65 in about 2350-something. You know, but between now and then, we're going to have to deal with that construction. You cross into Tennessee, and you go for about 15 miles, and you have to go through all of that. It's not easy to get through. Every time, you're just grateful that you made it through okay. I want you to think about the road between us and being lost as being like that. It's not easy. Because God has placed some barriers between us and being lost in His goodness. 
Will you consider those with me this morning, just a few of them, and the lesson will be yours. First of all, there is the barrier of preaching. God has given us a a preaching to keep us from being lost. You know, God has used preaching to deliver His message of salvation through all the ages of time. You go all the way back to the beginning, and 2 Peter 2 and verse 5 refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And much of the work of the prophets dealt with preaching. In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2, Scripture tells us that God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, and there preach the preaching that I tell you. And when the New Testament era opens and the forerunner of Jesus comes along, we read that he is in the wilderness of Judea and he is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3 and verse 1. And then Jesus is tempted and he is baptized. And we read in Matthew 4, 17 that he goes about preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And much of Jesus' work through his earthly ministry revolved around preaching. There was the limited commission where he sent 70 out preaching in Luke chapter 10. And then after his resurrection, there was the great commission that he gave to all in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When we think about what God has done then through preaching, we're not surprised to hear passages like 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. Or in Titus 1 and verse 3, God has in due times manifested His Word through preaching. Now, I look out this morning and I see that there are some who are a little bit younger and a little less young than others in the room. But you have been listening to gospel preaching and have been in Bible class for some period of time. Some for a long time. Ask yourself, how many Bible classes have I been a part of? How many sermons have I heard? If I die lost, I have to say no to every sermon that I've ever heard and every Bible class that I've ever been a part of. Gospel preaching just doesn't leave you the same. You know, if you open up your heart to the Word of God, you'll humble your heart to the will of God. And if you harden your heart to the will of God, you'll reject His message of salvation. Someone has said, the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. And the message of God will save one man and it will condemn another. But God has placed preaching as a barrier between us and being lost. But second, He has also placed the barrier, that wall, that roadblock of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul calls the church the pillar and the support of the truth. We know how important the church is to God as we consider that in the study of the New Testament. We see that the church being a a part of God's eternal plan. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 9 through verse 11. As we consider the church and how God has placed that between us and being lost. I think about the church at Lehman Avenue. I know churches have varying strengths and areas in which they struggle. But I think about how this church has tried to reach out to this community. You have spoken to this community and you have said to them every time that you have invited friends and co-workers and family members to come to church services. When we have events in which gospel preaching is going to take place and you encourage them or maybe you have prayed for them, you've offered financial assistance to them as you could. You have set the right example to them. You have loved them. You have said to this community, at least by your example, if you're going to be lost, you're going to have to climb over us in order to do that. 
Now, I've known some churches through the years that weren't living right. They weren't praying. They weren't evangelistic. And you would have to climb over them in order to get to God. But that's not true, I'm sure, of this congregation. You think about our elders. You think about what good men that they are. And how they love the lost and they lead us and encourage us to do the same. I realize that in a group this size that there are those who need to obey the gospel. But you're going to have to say no to the loving shepherding and leadership of this church. You're going to have to say no to the preaching of the preachers, to the Bible class, to our young people, to the love of each and every member. God has placed His church as a barrier between us and being lost. A third barrier is the barrier of the Bible. I'll be the first one to admit to you there's some things in the Bible that can be very difficult to understand. Peter said as much, didn't he, about Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3 in verse 16. He says, writing in them also of these things, that is the second coming, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable twist as they do the rest of the scripture to their own destruction. You ever thought about, wondered what it was that Peter had in mind with regard to Paul's writings that was so difficult? Maybe it was parts of the book of Romans. Maybe it was individual passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29. You ever been reading about the resurrection and you come across this idea of the baptism for the dead? I understand the context. I'm not sure I understand fully the illustration. Or maybe there's Revelation 20 and verse 3. But for all of that, those difficult passages of the Bible, there is so much of the Bible that we can understand. I want you to take, for example... The Great Commission of our Lord. You know, there are three places in the New Testament where God's Great Commission is given. I want you to think, for example, in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, where Jesus says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. Mark gives us the condition of faith for salvation. I want you to think about Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 24, he says that repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name unto all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He emphasizes clearly that repentance, the change of heart that leads to a change of life, is necessary in order to be saved, to become a Christian. And then I want you to think about Matthew's account of the Great Commission where he says, preach the gospel to every creature baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is a condition for one to be saved and become a Christian. Now in your mind, if you will, let this side of the pulpit be an A and let that stand for the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And on this end of the pulpit, I want you to think the letter E for the end of time. And in between that hyphen, between that A and E, let that stand for the Christian age. As long as the Christian age will endure, those same three conditions, belief, repentance, and baptism, are essential for you to be saved and to become a Christian. Now, you may not know much about the Bible, but knowing that, you know enough to become a Christian. I want you to think about the first time that the gospel was presented on the day of Pentecost, and Peter implied belief and taught repentance and baptism, those same three conditions. And in response to that simple message, 3,000 souls were baptized and added to the body of Christ, Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. There's so much more to add to that knowledge, but if you know that, you know what it takes to be a Christian. 
God has made His Word simple and understandable so we can absorb it and obey it and through that receive the gifts of promises that He has laid out in His Word. You know, you, you think about correspondences that we can have through social media and even through email. I received a, a lot of correspondence from Christians in other nations especially preachers, and they'll ask questions. They'll ask certain doctrinal questions. But you know one of the most frequent questions that I get? Can you get us more Bibles? Think about what we did here just a few months ago, not even that long ago, when we did the Bible drive for South Africa, and you brought Bibles from your home so that we could collect those and send them over to that, uh, that nation in the continent of Africa. We may take this for granted, But here in America, in every home, no matter what it is, most homes have at least one Bible. Most Christian homes have not one, but several Bibles. It may take some effort and some energy on our part to understand it, but if we go through life not knowing the will and the Word of God, it's because we have turned our head the other way from written revelation. There's no reason why we should wonder what God has to say about sin and salvation and the church because God has given us His Word as a barrier between us and being lost. But then there is the barrier, the roadblock of our common sense. All of us have at least a little bit of it. God has made us with it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes an appeal to our common sense. Here's what he says. He says, He that hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon the rock, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken him unto a foolish man that built his house upon the sand, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus is appealing to our common sense. He is saying, if you hear these sayings of mine and you don't do them, it's as insensible as a man who decides he's going to build a house. And he saves the money and he commits the time. And he expends the money and the effort and the time. And he builds a house on a foundation so flimsy that the first storm that comes along comes and blows that house away. Jesus is saying, that man did not use his head. And if you hear these sayings of mine and you don't do them, you're as insensible as that man. Can you imagine what it's going to be like on the day of judgment? To stand beside maybe someone from a nation who has never heard the gospel preached, who is not prepared, doesn't know anything about the word of God? And maybe you're standing beside that person and that person says to you, I'm not prepared for this day. I never read a thing about it. I never heard the gospel preached. I know nothing about this. And you have to say to him, I'm not prepared. And if he were to say, well, where did you come from? And you say, I came from America. And he says, you mean you came from America, the land of Bibles, and you heard gospel preaching, and you're not prepared, and you have to say, yes, I knew the way to heaven. I heard the gospel preached, but I didn't do a thing about it. We're going to be insensible standing before God having spurned such wonderful opportunities. You know, your common sense is basically going to tell you two things to do. Number one, do what you know is right. It is right to build a house on a solid foundation. It's right to obey the gospel. You're made in the image of God. You're accountable to Him. Someday you'll die. And you'll stand before him in judgment. 
Common sense says do what you know is right. And common sense also says do what you know is right right now. Imagine you find yourself sitting in your house and you aren't aware of it, but a neighbor sees that the house is on fire and runs in and says, you're in danger, you've got to get out of here now. Common sense says, I'm going to run. Or maybe you're like me and you don't swim very well and you find yourself in the water and somebody comes along and they offer a life preserver. It doesn't make sense for us to reject that when we know that we're about to perish. God has given us within ourselves our common sense to do what we know is right and to do it now to keep us from being lost. But he has also given us the barrier or the roadblock of family. Oh, family is so precious to us. God has given us a special responsibility to our family. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own house, this one has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I know that in the context that Paul is referring to physical assistance, but surely spiritual assistance is implied. I realize that inasmuch as I have a wife in my home now named Kathy, I have a unique responsibility to her. She needs me to go to heaven. And it makes it much more difficult for her to go to heaven if I'm not helping her. Me and God has placed us in the home to be spiritual leaders, to be the right kind of example. Every man in this building ought to lead his family to heaven. I can't imagine any man saying to his family, I know you need me to go to heaven. And more than likely, without my help, you're not going to make it. But if you're going to make it to heaven, you're going to have to make it alone. I can't imagine any man saying that. But when we aren't the spiritual leader that God wants us to be, in essence, that is what we're saying to our family. Ephesians 5 and verse 23, Paul says, Husbands, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He is the Savior of the body. Sometimes we talk about unfortunate children, and by that we may mean those that aren't adequately clothed and adequately fed, those who grow up in a home without a mom and dad, but the most unfortunate children in all the world are those who grow up in a home without God and without Christ, without a dad who they see with an open Bible in his lap, and the one they sees bowing his head in prayer who's evangelistic, who is faithful to the assemblies of the church. One who lives without that is the most unfortunate in all the world. But it's amazing the difference that one person can make in the home. Sometimes it's the wife. She lives the godly example of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1-6, through 6, and as the result of that, her husband's heart is reached, and he obeys the gospel, and so do the children. I've seen it on multiple occasions when it began with a little child. And they were reached maybe through the local church and that whole family obeyed the gospel. If you need to obey the gospel, do it for yourself. But do it also for your family. Another barrier on the roadway between us and being lost is the hill of Calvary. Can you imagine someone coming up to the cross of Calvary and saying, Lord Jesus, I know why you're here. You're taking my place. You're bearing my sins. But don't ask me to become a Christian. Don't ask me to be a faithful servant of yours. Don't ask me to serve or be committed to you. I can't imagine anybody saying that. But when we don't respond to his invitation, 
We're not saying no to the preacher or the sermon, but to the cross of Calvary. God has placed that hill of love between us and being lost. And then there is the hill, the barrier, the roadway of God's wonderful love. It is hard to adequately describe the love of God. It is so deep you can bathe in it. It is so high to lead you all the way to heaven. It is so warm it will make you into the image of Christ. And God has given us so many ways to see and appreciate his love. But I don't know that he's given us one better than the story of Abraham. Abraham who's waited for that son of promise so long and he comes. Isaac does. And imagine the, the love and warmth of that relationship. And can you imagine when God says, take him and offer him on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. And they go and they make their way to there. And as Abraham attempts to obey God and God stops his hand, the Godhead is seeing this in heaven. And the Father is looking across the centuries of time and realizing that there is another hill on which his son will be when he will not stop the proceedings but will allow him to die. God presented his love for us so that we'd have no doubt of what we mean to him And where he wants us to be. I hope you see that the road to hell is like that. It's up one hill and down another. It's facing roadblocks and barriers. Requiring us to say no to the barrier of gospel preaching. No to the barrier of the church. To the barrier of the Bible. To the barrier of our own common sense to the barrier of our family, to the barrier of the cross of Calvary and of God's wonderful love. If I go back to Matthew chapter 7, I realize that there are some, even maybe some among us, who are in the process of climbing over those barriers or maybe have already done so. I heard a story back in the old west days at the corner of town when the roads were made out of dirt and not paved. There was a little boy who went around He had his pet owl. And he'd go around town telling all the other little kids, my owl can whip any fowl. There's not a fowl my owl can't whip. There's another little boy in town who got wind of that, and he had a rooster. He carried that rooster around. He started telling the other little kids, my rooster can whip any fowl. There's not a fowl my rooster can't whip. Didn't rhyme, didn't matter. He was proud of that rooster. Ultimately, it was fated that they would meet together in the corner of that little town to figure out whose was toughest. They drew a little circle in the dirt. One boy put his owl in the middle and one boy put his rooster in the middle. They were going to let him duke it out. That owl was the meanest looking owl you've ever seen. It stood stock still, never moved a moment. Rooster reached out, flogged it, feathers went everywhere. The boy with the rooster said, I thought that was a tough bird. He said, you don't worry about my bird, my owl. It's tough. It's just thinking about it. They went back to it again, and and the second time, same thing happened. Third thing, same thing happened. This time, the owl fell over dead. The boy picked up the rooster and he walked away, and he said he died thinking about it, didn't he? There's a time to think, and there's a time to act. If you're not ready to meet our Lord in the judgment, and most many will not be, Because you've not acted on these three conditions that God has laid out for us. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you willing to change your mind and make Him the Lord of your life? Are you willing to be buried with Him in baptism to rise to walk in newness of life? If you'll make that decision, 
God has given you an assurance in His Word that as you walk in the light, not perfectly, but as you strive to, that on that day He'll say, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. God does not want any of us on His left hand. And He's given us all those proofs of it. But if you've not yet availed yourself of the blood of Christ by being His child, we're going to sing a song. Jeremy's going to lead us to encourage you. If you want to do that publicly in this assembly, we would love and we will encourage you in that. If you're a child of God who needs to make some changes in your life, why not avail yourself of all that we've seen? A loving family that will encourage you. We're going to sing this song. It'll be an encouragement to all of us to reflect. If in your reflection you need to publicly respond, we wait for you right now as we stand and sing.